Go and turn to Hebrews 10 if you're not there already. Big topic tonight. Some preachers say I got all my notes and uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to get through them all. I don't really know what that means because if, if I didn't prepare to say it, I'm probably not going to say it. At the same time, it's such a big topic. I know there's going to be some things that I have prepared to leave out without uh, thinking, without or not doing it on purpose, uh, but it's a huge topic. So technically, I probably should not finish my notes. We should probably stop somewhere halfway through, but uh, Lord willing, we'll get through it. Hopefully, you'll see through this passage clearly and see what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. But tonight, we're going to answer the, the big question of what should the believer think about commitment? And uh, Mike and I, we don't correlate our sermons, uh, but he talked about commitment this morning in terms of marriage and in terms of your spouse and purity. But tonight we're talking about commitment to Christ and commitment to his body, commitment to Christ's people. Uh, it's a controversial topic. Uh, the topic in, of commitment in the church is usually controversial. It's something that people can divide over, some people can argue over. It's not controversial in principle because we all agree that commitment's a good thing, and we all believe that we are committed. We're individually convinced ourselves that we are committed, however big that commitment is. Uh, but it only comes controversial when it starts to conflict with our wills and with our current habits, with our current decisions. That's where the controversy comes, when it starts to bear on you and your activities. So it's controversial. It's also unpopular. Uh, the modern church growth movement, their, their strategy for growth, uh, has been, let's see, now they didn't say this exactly, but essentially, let's see how minimal commitment we can offer to people. What's the minimum standard for commitment? And then people go and they shop for churches, and they say, Whichever, whatever church requires the least amount of commitment for me, but let me still feel like I'm part of the church, that's the church I want to be part of. And you, we see this happen all the time. So it is an unpopular thing. True biblical commitment is an unpopular thing. But tonight we're going to look at how we should think about commitment to Christ, commitment to his church as believers. There's a commentator on Hebrews, which they're all just commentators, by the way. Anyways, uh, his name's William Lane. But he has a slogan that he's given to the book of Hebrews that I really enjoy. I think it's very accurate, very helpful. He says, the book of Hebrews, if you had to sum it up into two small phrases, it'd be, ultimate certainty, then ultimate commitment. I think that's the book of Hebrews in a nutshell. That's how the book of Hebrews is designed. That's how we've seen it all the way around. We're, in, we're toward the end of chapter 10 now. We're toward the end of the letter. And the author has exposed the truth to us in his exposition and his delivery of the truth. And in the process, it has exposed us to the truth. Both of those things have happened. It's given us an exposition of God's truth, and then it's also pushed on us. It's pushed on our emotions and the warnings, saying, hey, there's truth, but now I'm pushing on you to see if this is something you really believe, if it's going to make a difference in your life. So far, we've seen Jesus as a superior messenger. We've seen him as a superior mediator. We've seen that he's superior to all the Levitical priests. We've seen that he's the mediator of a superior covenant. We've seen all these things so far. Now we're turning to a new corner and a new section in Hebrews that's going to present to us, as you can see on your paper there and on the screen, Jesus, who is the motivation of a superior commitment. He motivates us to something superior, a superior way of living, 
So packed into this passage that we're going to look at tonight is a review of that ultimate certainty and then an application, a very specific application of that ultimate commitment that we are to offer as Christ's people. So we're going to look at two things tonight, our possession and number two, our pursuit. That's where we're going to spend our time tonight in these verses. So let's jump right in and look at our possession. Starting in verse 19. We're going to answer the questions of what we have. What do we have as believers? What's the first thing that we have? It says we have confidence. We have confident access. That's the first thing that we have in verses 19 through 20. Confident access to God. Confidence, boldness, courage before God. There are two versions of confidence out there. Two versions of confidence you're going to run into. One is one you see most often. That is what? The world's version of confidence. What, does, what advice does the world give you about confidence? There's a particular advice that the world never, ever gets tired of telling kids in school about this idea of confidence. What does it constantly tell you? We need what? More self-confidence. Okay, that's what you always hear in the world. Now, if you're a member of Grace Bible, you probably disagree with that, which makes you different from the majority of the world out there. But why? What, what is wrong with that statement? What is wrong with always pushing for more and more self-confidence? Why is that bad advice? Why is that wrong? It's Because we are ultimately what? We're limited. If we're putting our confidence in ourselves and our own skills and our own wisdom, there's a limit to all of those things. Even the strongest, the most wisest person, the most skilled person in all the world is still restricted, still a problem, still limited. Why do you think so many actors, actresses, People who have all the talent, all the money, all the looks, all those abilities, they get to the end of their lives, and are many of them happy? Are many of them joyful? They have all of the world's ingredients for self-confidence, don't they? But they end their lives miserable. Robin Williams, he looked like he was perfectly happy in all his movies, but what did he do? He killed himself at the end of his life. He was miserable, no friends, empty. Self-confidence is bad advice. If confidence is in ourselves, then by necessity, the confidence must come and go. And more often than not, it will go. It will go away, whether we're willing to admit it or not. The more you search inside yourself, the more emptiness you're going to find. But there's a better version. There's another version of confidence that we're going to look at, and that is the Scripture's version. What, what does the Bible tell us about confidence? And you see it right here in this passage. What's the Bible's version of confidence? What makes it different? We'll see it right in this text. Number one, it comes from the work of Christ. It doesn't come from your own merits. It's not in me, as the song we, we just sang says. It comes from the work of Christ. Look at back at verse 19. It's by the blood of Jesus. It's by a new and living way, which Christ inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. Is this new information in the book of Hebrews right here? No, it's not new. He's been saying this all along. That's what I mean. He's doing a review of this ultimate certainty that we have. Jesus' blood is a superior blood. Jesus' blood actually accomplished something. The old priests, the old sacrifices, the old covenant, they've been done away with, and now we have a better priest, we have a better sacrifice, we have a better covenant. Now the Holy Spirit wants it to be absolutely clear to us that there's no other place to find hope except in this new covenant and in its mediator. When Jesus Christ, when he died on Golgotha, when he made his final breath, there's something that happened, not on Golgotha, but something that happened in Jerusalem. What was it? Something substantial. 
something that should have shocked the nation. What happened? The temple. Something happened in the temple. Something where all, they're always doing the sacrifices, always doing this over and over again. What happened? Jimmy said the, t- the veil was torn in two. Can you think of any better object lesson for Israelites who were growing up generation after generation after generation of all the sacrifices? Is there any better object lesson than the, the veil separating God and man being torn in two? Is there any better object lesson, any better illustration than that? I can't think of any. He opened up the way of God for his people, a new way, a better way, a living way. Confidence comes from the work of Christ. It also comes and has to do with access into God's very own throne room. Verse 19, look back down at verse 19. It's not just general confidence, but confidence to do what? Confidence to enter the holy place. We've been looking at Hebrews, we've been looking at the background in the book of Leviticus. What would happen to the priest if he just walked into the holy place? He would die. He had to have something with him, and what was it? He had to bring blood with him. We've already covered that. That tabernacle was just a shadow of a much greater heavenly tabernacle, wasn't it? Something bigger, arguing from the lesser to the greater again. So how could we? As sinners through and through, like we just saying, how can we even think about going into the holy place? The real, the one true holy place, God's very own throne. How could we do it? We have to have the blood of Christ. And this is the confidence that we have. Number three, this confidence is something, listen to this, this is where we're going to really start to apply this. This is something that every believer has, objectively speaking. Not what every believer could get, but what every believer does have. And that's what this text is saying. We have this confidence. It's not something that can come and go. This confidence is something that is there. And now he's talking to who in this passage? How do you know who he's talking to in verse 19? Is there any clues? Brethren. So he's talking to believers here. This is something that every single person, every single member of the new covenant has. You could close your eyes to it, couldn't you? You could close your ears to it as well, couldn't you? You could pretend like it's not there. Is that possible? And go on in habitual sin and things like that and pretend like it's not there, this true confidence that God has given to us? Is that possible? It is possible. If I could go back and marry Savannah all over again, I would do one thing differently. You know what I've done? I would have eaten shrimp. What in the world do do this? My mother-in-law knew, my future mother-in-law at the time, she knew I loved shrimp. So she brought this big, huge bowl of shrimp to the wedding reception. And it was over by the salad bar table and all that. I had no idea there was a salad bar. I had no idea any of that was there. And I went to the meal really quickly. I greet everyone at the table like James and Julie just did. You walk around and you don't get to eat your meal, right? So I had no idea the shrimp was there. But it's something that I had. And actually it was specifically for me. My mother-in-law was being very kind, and she gave it to me, but it was something I didn't realize was there. I closed my eyes to it. I bypassed it. I didn't see it. I didn't take advantage of it, but it's something nonetheless that I did truly have for the taking. So this verse is something that we have. I'm going to make this point over and over again. It's not something that you could have. It's not something that you should have. 
It's not something that only very strong Christians sometimes have. It's something that every member of the New Covenant does have. We have confidence. It's concrete. It's objective. It's certain. It's absolute. Bold, confident access to God through Christ is what we have. Now we keep on going to verse 21. Also tells us of something else that we have. What's the next thing that we have? We have a great priest over the house of God. Number two, we have a great priest. We have Christ himself. He is that mediator that we've been describing throughout our study. He was better than the angels. He was higher than the angels. He was the creator. He was the sustainer. He was made in the likeness of God. All these things, he was God himself, the exact representation of God's nature. But what did he do? Became lower. Became lower than the angels. He suffered. He died so he could taste death for mankind. He took on flesh and blood like us. He was made like us in all things. He was tempted in every area like we are, except he never did it with sin. He could deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. He, could, he offered up loud crying and tears, and he did that for us. He is our mediator. He is the son over God's house. He's a great priest over God's house, the text says. God's people are no longer under Moses. They're no longer under David. They're no longer under the priest. We have a new master, and he's not competing for the position with Satan or anybody else. He is the master. He is in heaven at God's right hand, ruling over God's people. So now when you get to verse 22, the author is going to continue a long sentence that he started back from verse 19. So look back at the whole context again. See what the whole, where the whole argument's going. Look back at verse 19 again. The author says, Therefore, brethren, since or because we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and notice secondly, and since or because we have a great priest over the house of God, because we have absolute confidence to enter God's presence through the work of Christ, because we have Christ himself as our own great high priest, because we have these things, it says, let's do something. Because we have these possessions, let's apply these things. Let's do three things in particular. And these three things become, number two, our pursuit. Our pursuit in verses 22 through 25. New covenant, renewed commitment. Better covenant, better commitment. Superior covenant, superior commitment. Superior sacrifice. What are we pursuing in these verses? Number one, worship. Worship. In verse 22. What kind of picture does the Bible give us of worship? It gives us a pretty diverse picture of worship, doesn't it? Different ways to worship. You read the Psalms, they'll tell you several things. You read the Psalms, they'll tell you you can worship God with what? With singing, right? You can tell you do it with instruments. Do it with a shout. In case anyone's sleeping in church, you do it with a shout to wake everyone up in the midst of the brethren. On a Sunday night, I'm not sure if Israel did services on Sunday nights or not. You can list out God's attributes and character. You can tell of his acts of faithfulness and kindness and justice. You can worship God this way. And whatever description of worship that the Bible gives, what they all have in common is what? God is at the center. The glory of God is at the center of them all. That's what they all have in common. But the author of Hebrews, this book of Hebrews, has a special emphasis, special description of worship that is very interesting and it, it is approaching God this emphasis of drawing near to God is how the book of Hebrews defines worship look back at verse 22 
It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this would have been a very big deal because of the background of the Mosaic sacrifices, all these sacrifices from the Mosaic Covenant. What was the goal of those sacrifices? What were they always doing? They were always drawing near to the tabernacle. They were always coming near to God. That was what they were always attempting to do. Back at verse ten, uh, chapter 10, look back at verse 1. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things, the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, the law, it can't make perfect who? Those who draw near. They were always drawing near, but the law never brought them perfection. Now we're being commanded to draw near and worship to God. That's the command we've been giving here. Let us draw near. Because we have these possessions, let us first worship. Let's draw near to God. Now notice also in the text, what kind of attitude should we have as we approach God? What kind of attitude should we have as we approach God? What does the text say? A sincere heart and full confidence. This is not, and I'm not so sure about this kind of an idea, I'm not sure what God's going to do if I approach him, kind of an attitude. It's a sincere heart and full confidence. He's telling us full assurance. He's telling us no wavering. He's saying no doubting God. He will accept you because of what Christ has done. And you say, well, that's nice for you, but I'll never have that kind of assurance. Is it going to feel that way? You say, how are there so many believers who have all this confidence, all this assurance? I see this on Facebook all the time, and they say, I can never have that kind of confidence. I can never have that kind of assurance. I, I understand that. I've felt that same way before, and I've talked to many of you who've felt that same way before. And we do need to make one big point here, because there is one big thing in all of our lives that will erode this confidence, that will erode our assurance. And that thing is habitual sin, falling into habitual sin, making a particular sin an ongoing habit. Now, we need to think about this together for a moment. Does every believer struggle with habitual sin? Kind of a trick question, isn't it? Yes. At some point, every believer struggles with habitual sin. And you say, well, no, I, not anymore. I don't do that anymore. If that's your response, that means the Lord's about to show you that you have an habitual sin of pride. Because we can be blind to sin. For instance, the Lord over the past few weeks has been showing me my anger. I used to think that I was a patient guy. I used to think I was really tolerant. It took a lot to make me upset. But the Lord's starting to reveal more and more, hey, you're getting angry way too quickly. Is that a new sin for me? I don't think so. I think it's been there all along sitting inside my heart. And the Lord revealed it to me. Habitual sin. That's the first thing we need to know is habitual sin is something that believers do struggle with. Second thing we need to say about this is that struggle implies life. Struggle implies life. Think about that. If you are struggling with habitual sin, that means probably that you've not fallen into the category of Hebrews 10:26, which is the next week's passage, which is very severe. If you are actually struggling with it, that is actually a good sign. If there is no struggle, 
if there is no concern, if there's no sense of I've offended God to you and you only I've sinned against, if there's none of that, then this passage is not going to offer you any comfort. I'm not going to offer you any comfort either as long as you don't care about your sin. So struggle does imply life. Third thing we could say about this is that we need to use our access to God to fight sin. One of the biggest mistakes that we can make is to think that all of this means is that your sin is not a very big deal after all. Because God's given me confidence, he's given me access, therefore my sin is no big deal. Well, we need to not have that attitude. We need to actually use the access that we have to God as a fight, as, as ammo to fight against our sin. Use your access to God not to make you feel comfortable in your sin, but to give you more courage to fight it. Does that make sense? Use this to fight your sin. Number four, the biggest mistake, the biggest mistake you could make is to not go to God's throne room at all. That's the biggest error any of us could do as we struggle with habitual sin. You say, I would have confidence, I would go to God, but I sinned again. I did it again. I told the Lord last three months, every single week, that I would not fall into it again, and I did it again. Therefore, I'm going to stop going to God's throne room. I'm going to stop drawing near. Still go. Keep going. Go back. Go back. He'll give you courage to fight. And the last thing we'll say about this habitual sin is that if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you are a true believer, that means he has already dealt with all of your sin. And that's what we've been seeing all along. Absolute certainty that he has dealt with your sin, past, present, and future. He's dealt with it. He's done away with it. He's paid the debt. And if you think that you can only approach God, if you think that you can only draw near to God once you've conquered your own sin, then what are you doing with that? You're essentially adding a second payment to, the, to God for your sin. Because does God require double payment? Does he require that Christ pay for your sin and then you pay for your sin as well? God doesn't require that. The blood of Christ is all that is required. That's why I love that hymn that we sing a lot before the throne. It says, when, temp, when Satan tempts me to despair, he tells me of the wrong, the guilt within. We, that's where we all often stay for even whole weeks at a time. Guilt, despair. But then what do we do? We look up and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And that's how we have confident access in the very first place through the blood of Christ. Draw near. And verse 22 goes back to describe how we can have this confidence. It tells us exactly how we can have this confidence. Look back at verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's how. Aren't you glad that I'm not Moses up here sprinkling blood on you, inaugurating a new covenant, a different covenant with you? I don't know how the people would respond when they got blood mixed with water sprinkled all over them, but aren't you glad I'm not doing that right now? And if I did, besides probably irritating you, probably making you feel very uncomfortable, probably making you want to go home right away, what would it have not done? Wouldn't have done anything on the inside, would it? Would not have done anything to clean your conscience. But now we have total purification through the blood of Christ. That is how we can have confidence. That is how we can draw near. That's how we're able to worship God in the first place, because Christ has paid the debt. He cleans you on the inside. 
Let's take a look at our next pursuit. Based on what you know of these original readers of this letter, the book of Hebrews, people who originally read it when it was very first penned, the people who very first received it, based on what you know about their circumstance, they were having lots of problems. Now, don't answer out loud, but were their problems social and physical, or were their problems spiritual and inward? No, don't answer out loud. But think about what their problems were like, what kind of problems they had. It's a tricky question. After they made a public commitment to Christ, after these people identified with the body of Christ, after they identified as members of the new covenant, later on in the same chapter that we're in right now, it says that they endured a great conflict of suffering. It said they were made fun of publicly. Some of their friends were thrown into prison. Some of them had their property taken away. What kind of problems were they having? Their spiritual commitments led to serious social problems with real physical consequences. It's very complex. It's like all of our problems. You can't just whittle down our problems just to one little thing. They're very complex. All kinds of things going on at the same time. So the big question is, how does the pastor address his people's problems? As he's writing this letter to them, as he's preaching this sermon to them, how does he address their problems? Real physical consequences, real social implications of their problem. But how does he address it? Look down at the next verse. How is he addressing what's going on with them? How is he going to help them? Verse 23, doctrine. Say, doctrine? Are you sure you're not reading that into the text? Just because that's been a hot topic lately and that's your particular view and you're making it force into the text? Is that why? What does it say? It's doctrine. I'm positive I'm right on this. We've seen over and over again over the last half year of studying Hebrews, what the author cares about is doctrine. What he cares about is truth. What he cares about is what God says. And in particular, he cares about the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. As we've studied through Hebrews, have we studied all kinds of implications, all kinds of strategies for first century Greco-Roman social reconstruction? Have you heard anything about that? Have you heard a single word about reconstructing the society of, Gre- of Rome and Greece in that time frame in, in Jerusalem? Have you seen a single word about that? He has delivered doctrine to them. And when you get to verse 23, he tells them to hold on to something, and that is going to be doctrine. Now, we're going to say at the end of the message that we don't want to close our hearts to the poor, the widow, the orphan. That's all implied. That's all assumed. None of us would disagree with that. But he's telling us to hold on to the only thing that is certain in the world, and that is the person and work of Christ. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And when I say doctrine, I do not just mean studying systematic theology. If you read all of Rain Grudem, I'm not going to say, oh, you don't have to do anything else, you're good. I'm not talking about that, although I think those are great things. But if not doctrine, if not the truth of God's word, we cannot be rightly called a community of believers. The title believer implies what? There's content of a belief that you have. That there's an object of belief. All of our hope is in someone who did something in Palestine 
2,000 years ago. Based on truth. It's based on event. It's based on something that happened. So what does all this have to do with our pursuit? What does all this have to do with our perseverance? Here's how the message breaks down in the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to skip because I missed all kinds of things. There you go. Look at that. Here's how it breaks down in this, in this book. Looking to Christ. That's the foundation. Then what happens after that? What's the result of looking to Christ? After you've seen, clearly seen this person at work, then what happens? What does that do in your soul? What does that do in your heart? It gives you assurance. It gives you confidence in Christ. Then what does that lead to? That then leads to perseverance. Why did I map it all out that, that clearly, that specifically? Because I believe that most of the time, we say, if I'm not persevering, then I'm not going to persevere. Or I've been performing very weakly, or very weak on my perseverance, therefore I'm not going to persevere. Does that make sense what we usually do in our hearts? We say, I've failed so many times, that means I'm going to give up. I've sinned too many times, therefore I'm going to stop persevering. What's wrong with all that? It's, go, it's starting with the wrong foundation. It's starting with yourself. Over and over and over and over again, we've seen in this book that you look to Christ first, that he is the foundation, and then that's what gives you your assurance, and then that's what leads to commitment. That's what leads to perseverance. This is the key to the Christian life. This is the key to sanctification. It's not something that starts inside of yourself. It starts as something that Christ has done. It starts with the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. That's the foundation. Now it gets even better. We're commanded to hold on to this confidence or this confession of Christ. We're told to hold on to it without wavering. See those words in the verse. You say, well, that's, gonna, that's asking way too much. I feel like I barely even have a, a pinky hold on Jesus right now. How can you say that I could do this without wavering? I'm telling you to hold on to the truth of Christ without falling over one side, without falling over the other side. Saying, don't be like the person in the book of James who's doubting God and is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the waves. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. Saying, do it without wavering. There's so much certainty in this passage, but it doesn't always seem to match our experience. And that's where the problem comes. Say, I see the certainty. I see it really clearly here, but I don't see it in my own experience. And when that happens, we make our experience our reality. And then we create an alternate reality, which is not a biblical reality. It's one that we've constructed based on what's happened in our lives. This is what we do all the time. And usually our wavering is not passive. It's not something that we just kind of let happen. Usually our wavering comes in the form of accusing God of being unfaithful. Whenever we don't hold unto Christ without wavering, whenever we do waver in our commitment, we accuse God. This was Asaph's struggle. In Psalm 77, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read it. Psalm 77 and verse 7. The inspired psalmist had the exact same problem of accusing God whenever he wavered. Whenever the psalmist wavered, he would accuse the Lord. It says, will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has God's loving kindness ceased forever? Has this promise come to an end forever? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious, or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And then I said, it's my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. God's changed on me. He said one thing, and now he's doing something different. This was the accusation of Asaph to God himself. You see the same thing in Isaiah 40. The people of Judah were complaining about the same thing. They were struggling, and they were complaining to God. They said, my way is hidden from the Lord. They say, the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. They said, the Lord, is, the Lord he doesn't notice me anymore. They say, God isn't being fair to me anymore. This is what we do too often as we try to reconcile what God has told us, as we try to reconcile that with what we've experienced. But the end of verse 23 gives us the key that is so simple that people very easily despise it. Such a simple answer. Why are we called to do this without wavering? How can we do this without wavering? What does the text say? Because he who promised is faithful. Has God changed? No. We have. We changed. Has God lost his faithfulness? We have. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No, we forgot to be committed. But look back at Psalm, 70, Psalm 77. Did Asaph stay in that despair? Did he stay in that accusation of God? Did he keep on accusing? Did he keep on wavering? What did he do? Look at verse 11. He said, at this turning point, he said, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Now you see a smile on his face. He said, I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. This is the God that we serve. He who promised is faithful. So hold on tightly to your confession of Christ. Doctrine. The truth. Our circumstances change. Our experiences change. But God's truth does not change. He is faithful. He is promised. Finally, the most difficult one in our last 10 minutes, number three, our pursuit of, what do you think it is? People. People. Worship, doctrine, then people. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching about commitment, and I'm preaching about assembling together and meeting together to people who come regularly on a Sunday night. So I don't want to just make us all feel good. I want us to think deeply about what this text is saying so we can apply it and so that we can see our own sin and so we can see how we can encourage each other. But I am convinced that many people have a fundamentally wrong view of what the church should be doing and what they themselves should be doing in the church. I know that most people... Very many people across America have a wrong idea about what should be going on in the church. They show up for an hour on Sunday. They look around at everyone during the singing. Take a sip of coffee, which is great. If you can mix music and coffee, I'm okay with that. Uh, but you sit down and listen to the most of the preacher's sermon or some of the preacher's sermon. You go and shake a few hands after the service. You pay your dues in the offering box on your way out or in the offering plate on your way out so you can come back and enjoy the same thing next week. That's usually what church is for most people. 
The problem with all that is most people think of the church in terms of an organization. That's how they've made their primary definition of what the church is. It's an organization. It's a machine. Something that's well-lubed, something that just works. It goes on its own. Nothing wrong with organization. When Moses was getting tired out because he was constantly trying to judge everyone's case, Jethro said, hey, what you're doing is not good. You need to appoint you know, elders so they can help you out with your task. That's, all, that's organization. I, I actually, I love organization. It makes me feel very secure on the inside. Um, I like having agendas for our meetings. That makes me feel very special. I like it. I love organization. But in the end, it's going to fail us if that's all we have because the church itself is not an organization. It's necessary, but it's not the heart of what the church is. If it's not an organization, then what is the church? What is the church? An organism. It's living. The church is breathing. The church can be sick. The church can be healthy. A church can su- a struggle. A church can suffer. A church can thrive. A church can meet in a house on Wednesday nights. A church can meet at a park. A church can meet in a chapel. It's alive. It's an organism. It's not just an organization. So what has God chosen, in particular, to accomplish his great commission? What has God chosen? Who has he chosen better? He has chosen to use people. And not just people, but he has chosen you. He has chosen me. He has chosen every believer. People, living, breathing, blood pumping through our bodies. He has chosen people to accomplish his work. Why? I think I know why, because he gets all the glory. These clay pots, broken vessels, carrying a treasure. That's how he best gets his glory. But he's chosen to use people nonetheless. He's not chosen methods. He's not chosen to use programs. He's not chosen to use any other organizational piece. He's not chosen to use, tell us, he's not called us to engage culture. And this is a soapbox for me. I'm sorry I had to say it, but if I hear someone say, we have to engage culture, I'm going to pull all of my hair out. Engage culture. That's what I hear all the time. Where in the Bible does God say to engage culture? Has he ever told us that? What has God told us to engage? What has he called us to do? He has called us to engage people, individuals, in real time, space, and history. Not just some manufactured idea as you've studied and exegeted a culture, but real people, individuals who have different personalities, different perspectives on their own culture, different languages. He's called us to engage people. He's called us to love people. And you see in this text four actions or four responsibilities that we have as we make people our pursuit. Consider, provoke, assemble, and encourage. First, look at consider. I want you to make some observations with me on this word consider. Think about this word consider. Consider the word consider. First, it's an active command. It's not a passive command. It doesn't say, let us be considered That'd be a really passive, really comfortable way of hearing this, wouldn't it? Let us be considered. Maybe someone will come along my way and they'll consider me. When someone's going to consider me and give me a job to do around here, then I'll be ready when they consider me. There is no prescription beyond what is written here. Consider. It's active. Look. For opportunities. You look for opportunities. Consider. 
Second, it requires careful thought. That's the meaning of the word consider, isn't it? Something that you actually meditate on. It takes time. It takes energy. You have to meditate on it. You have to think about it. It uses physical and mental strategies, strength. Consider. Think about it. Careful thought. Third, it means personal responsibility. This word consider means personal responsibility. Think about it. The universal, most natural, most common reaction that we have, the very first thought when we hear this word and this command is for us to make a list of ways other people are not fulfilling this command toward us. That's exactly what we do. You say, well, the Bible says to consider, and I'm in this church, and no one's considered me. That's what we do every time. Who's that talking? Is that the new man or the old man? It's definitely the old man still talking. Then you say, well, that wasn't my first thought. We have to admit something else. The other, the second most popular way of responding to this command is for us to make a big list of other people who are not serving the church. We say, I am serving the church, but I got a big list of people who are not serving the church. It's only when you are actively serving God's people and actively seeking to do it in the strength that God gives you, when you are doing that with God at the forefront, with God at the reins, you will see your own failings, your own inadequacies. Because active, dependent service to the body of Christ has a way of not puffing you up. It has a way of making you feel about this small. I'm not talking about robbing of your joy, but making you see that I am a clay pot. I'm a broken pot. And then when you're in that position, then you're in a better spot to see other people's lack of service and then to encourage them appropriately, which we'll see as part of this process. So we are going to let each other down in this church. I would say from time to time, but probably a good bit of the time we're going to let each other down. But if this whole church thing is going to work, if we're going to actually exist as a church and thrive and grow instead of suffer and, and, and fall apart, we're all going to have to embrace that this is first and foremost a personal responsibility. Consider, it's active, it's something that we have to actually think about, and it's something that we have to own as our own duty. Individuals, each of us. Then what in particular should we consider? Number two, provoke. Provoke, and I'm sure I've had a slide that is going to be very illuminating. There you go, number three, doctrine. And then people. Okay. Stimulate. Who is the NASB? Probably the word stimulate and as be. I think provoke is, I think I put provoke there because I grew up with the King James Version. Is that right, Dad? Provoke, one, uh, one other to love and deeds. The word stimulate, it's from a family of words that means to sharpen, to sharpen something. So you have that same word family in the book of Proverbs says, for iron to do what? Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. But this word in particular is used in the Greek Old Testament, and it always refers to one thing, something you would not expect. It always refers to God's anger, God being provoked to wrath, God being stimulated to be angry toward people. That's how it's always used in the Old Testament. You say, well, now I get it. That's easy. I can do that. I can provoke each other to anger. I know exactly how to do that. That's not what he's saying. But the idea, because it is a very strong word, Still a strong word. doesn't mean to make each other angry, but it's a strong word. It means to be so strategic, so active in other people's lives that they cannot help but be stimulated by your presence, by the things you say, by the things you do, by your actions, by your service, by your love. 
And that brings up the next question. What are we provoking each other, what are we provoking each other to do? If it's not anger, what should we provoke each other to do in particular? It's the responsibility of every believer to provoke other believers to do what? Love and good deeds. We need to make this note, too, that the church is often, whenever the church, whenever people look at the church from the outside, like whenever we're out evangelizing, people are usually most concerned that we're going to judge them because they got the impression that we are more known for what we are against rather than what we are for. And I, you know, the world's going to always slander and the world's always going to have a mis- mislabel us and always call something that we don't want to be called. But I really don't want to be known that way. I want to be known for what we are for for what we are here to do, and that is to love, that is to do good deeds. We need to be known as people who love each other, people who sacrifice even for our unbelieving neighbors next to us, people who take care of widows and orphans, and especially to do good to the household of faith. And we need to do this until it hurts. How do you know if you're serving well? How do you know if you're doing good to God's people? It's probably going to cost. That's why later on in the book of Hebrews it says, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices. Sacrifices are bloody. Sacrifices are, but with such sacrifices, God is pleased, the text says. Provoke. Consider, provoke, and assemble. I'm not talking about the Avengers, I'm talking about the church. Assemble. Here's something very practical. Something very, very practical for us. Okay, I said, Emily, at the beginning, I, I, would, I knew exactly what I was going to but I'm, I'm out of time. But I think it's only going to take a couple minutes, so I think you'll be okay. Here's something very practical, verse 25. It tells us what not to do. It says, do not forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some. I've heard many people preach on this text, go over this text, and they say, this verse has nothing to do with church attendance. Have you ever heard people say that before? Have you ever heard someone say that this does have to do with church attendance? I had no, no idea of a poll because... Oh, <laughs> thanks, Dave and Steve. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> but I've heard people preach on this text. They say this has nothing to do with church attendance. And they have this idea that, that pressure. They don't like pressure. They say it has to do with people being personally gathered to Christ because they've used this word that's found in a different text in 1 Thessalonians and they've imported it into here and says it means something different. But we are living in a day and age where people are especially sensitive to being pressured to do things. If there's any kind of pressure, if there's any kind of sense that this action is not entirely of my own choice, not entirely of my own volition, then I'm I'm not going to do it because I'm feeling pressured. And maybe that's not unique to my generation, but it's definitely a big issue. That's what, really, if you had to boil this whole, you know, this labeling of the millennials, this is what it is. We don't want any pressure to do anything. But this word pressure is important here because what kind of pressure were these original readers facing? What kind of pressure were they undergoing? From the government. They say, if you identify with Christ and not with Caesar, or if you don't at least identify with Christ and with Caesar, then there's going to be consequences. So if you're identifying with Christ and if you're not giving tributes to the emperor, there's going to be trouble for you. You're going to have problems. That's the kind of pressure they're facing to not assemble together with the body of Christ. 
death, exile, persecution, stealing of property. So I believe a good starting point for understanding this verse is to say that Hebrews 10.25 is much more than church attendance, but it is definitely not less. I think we could leave it at that. Now, that's not where I was planning on finishing the message. We want to get on to the rest of it, but I will go ahead and stop here for now, and we'll pick it up next week. Um, also next week, it gets even harder because that's one of the other warning passages in the book of Hebrews, um, trampling on the blood of sacrifice of Christ. Uh, but let's go ahead and pray together. Pray that as we think about this passage this week, that we would provoke each other to love and good deeds, that we would think carefully about how we can serve each other and how it's all based on something that Christ did, not first on our activities. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We cannot make a big list of sins that we've never done and show them to you to show you how proud you should be of us. Lord, it's only based on what Christ has done. It's his righteousness, not ours. Lord, all of our confidence that we objectively have is based on that because Christ is ours. He's our possession. Lord, I pray that that truth, that doctrine would lead us to practically apply it in the church, to worship you, to draw near to you, to go near to you in our time of need because you will accept us because Christ has died for our sins. And I do pray, Lord, that you'd help us to hold tightly to the truth that we've learned. Lord, that we would do it without wavering. Lord, that we would not accuse you of being unfaithful, but that we'd remember your deeds, that we'd remember your wonders, your strength toward your people, and that we'd know that you're faithful. And I do pray that we'd love each other. Please forgive us for our many failings in that area. Please help us to be more and more strategic, more and more deliberate about how we love each other and provoke each other to love others. We do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.